Welcome to episode number 170, The Road Less Traveled. I am your host, Damon Soka. Now before I begin today, I wanted to note that this week I will be starting up again the Spanish language translation of this podcast. It will be the same podcast, but obviously in Spanish. It will be hosted on all of the same hosting sites as this podcast and any that would typically cater to the Spanish language. Now as a reminder, I will be starting with podcast 169 and working backwards towards earlier podcasts. I hope to have them up by this following Sunday. Now today I want to talk about moments of life-changing decisions. Making decisions and moving forward are probably those things we procrastinate most when we suffer with mental illness. Not because we don't want to make them, but because our emotional capacity doesn't necessarily allow for it. But life moves on around us, and eventually we must act and move forward, because the simple truth is avoiding a decision is actually making a decision. In the title to my podcast today, I'm using a small portion of a poem from Robert Frost. Now, many of you have heard it, but I'm actually going to quote it in its entirety today. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both. And be one traveler, long I stood, and looked down one as far I could, to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other, as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that the passing there had worn them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, in leaves no step, had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how the way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood. And I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Decisions. We came to mortality to make decisions. Or as Elder Bednar would probably have put it, we came to act, not to be acted upon. We did not come here for a vacation, or to audit our mortal classes, or even to sit on the balcony of the play. We came here to be part of the action, to be intimately intertwined with our brothers and sisters, emotionally, socially, and spiritually. This was to be the final act in the reality of our drama. We were going to be tested, wholly and completely, to see if what we had learned previous to this life was sufficient for godhood. The time frame would be minimal, even a pinhead of space in the expanse of the universe. I admit that I have often questioned why mortality is so important and why the plan of, of an omniscient God would be to block out critical memories, a premortal experience, give us weaknesses, surround us with imperfect people, and then tell us to be perfect. For much of my life, mortality didn't make sense as a testing grounds. It felt to me as if just before taking our bar exam, our college experience was deleted in its entirety from our memory. I think many of us wonder why our final experience before immortality and life as a god had to be this. In addition, why send a savior to a time and a place with none of the technological advantages of today. His reach was limited. His time on earth was limited. Everything about his experience was limited. 
except, of course, the atonement, which turns out is limitless in its abilities and reach. When you look at mortality from a purely rational perspective, God does not appear very omniscient. Perhaps that is why science turns its attention elsewhere so often. However, if you understand the origin and purpose of our emotions and motivations, this mortal life makes perfect sense. If you wanted to know the true character and nature of a person, who they are deep within their soul, then removing the physical memory and providing weaknesses and imperfection actually makes a great deal of sense. The only true motivation would be those spiritual experiences before this earth that molded the soul, the soul from spiritual clay. Our true unaltered nature would naturally be brought forth. We would have no physical memory of our father or mother in heaven that might cause us to act in ways only to please them rather than demonstrate our true nature. It would have been like attending high school with your parents sitting in the back of the class. We would have been acting out of expectation rather than true nature. We would be more a stringed puppet rather than real. If you consider that many of us became celestial before this life, ultimately there would be no loss of anyone who had proven themselves celestial before this life. Whether they died before the age of accountability or significantly thereafter, it really wouldn't matter. Celestial nature tends to be celestial no matter when or where you place it. Terrestrial nature tends to be terrestrial nature, again, no matter where or when they are placed. And the same is true for those of a more celestial nature. In addition to demonstrating our true nature, those deep relationships and sentimental social interactions that had occurred would be obscured so that even our brothers and sisters would not or could not influence our expectations. We would be given a full opportunity to demonstrate the real us. But the Lord would not leave us without the stirrings of our soul. Our emotions would be left intact. Our nature expressed through our desires and feelings would remain. When we heard words that matched those that had echoed through our spiritual ears in a pre-mortal life, similar feelings would arise and we would hear his voice and we would know it. While our memories would be obscured, our hearts would not be. We were left with an internal guide that allowed us to become who we once were, even without our memory. Here in mortality, we tend to grow towards the nature of the person we were in pre-mortal life. We become in many ways very similar to our previous spiritual nature. So when we come to those diverging roads, we have an internal compass. When we make covenants, we augment that compass with stirrings and voices of the Spirit that can help remind us but also make significant changes to that internal spiritual nature. We call that a change of heart, but it only happens through the changes the Spirit can make in our nature when we are humble, submissive, repentant, and ask for it to occur. Sometimes those changes are large and obvious, but most of the time our nature changes subtly without us really feeling or seeing the difference. 
a consistent effort over time actually causes far more change to occur than a one-time event, and those changes also tend to stick to us more readily. What should be noted about the change in our nature is that it does not only move towards a celestial nature, such as a stream flowing downhill. This life was to be a sifting pot, and we were placed so that our souls could expand or contract. We are always adding to and adjusting our nature, whether to the celestial side or the telestial side. We can certainly climb down the hill towards telestial life as much as we can move uphill towards celestial. Because we are to act and not to be acted upon, we can never be truly stationary in our nature. That is the one way we are very much like our heavenly parents. They are celestial because they continue to choose to be. We have the ability to change our nature now because the process of judgment has been withheld or postponed until a future date. But once we come to our date with judgment, our natures will be fixed as they are. We will not be able to move from terrestrial to celestial or telestial to terrestrial because our natures will no longer have the ability to change. The spirit can only operate on hearts until the final judgment and then it will no longer be possible to have that spirit with us. Now, as we act here in mortality, we are consistently faced with decisions. Most of our decisions will be small and what might seem insignificant in the change of heart process. But no decision regarding good and evil is ever small in the eternal scheme of things. Every small decision adds to the cumulative effect. But today I want to talk about those decisions that appear large and more life-changing in nature. These are the obvious large decisions that cause the fork in the road to be very present in our lives. Should I marry this person? What should be my career? Where should I live? Is this social group right for me and my future? Should I leave my current job for another that might be distant? What should I do about a wayward friend or a child? These are the questions that stop us in our tracks. We can often see them coming from a mile away. We know that they are going to make significant changes in our lives and they are likely to cause some wonderful experience along with the inevitable turmoil. How do we approach such decisions? First, let's talk a little bit about our illness and decision making. Clinical depression, anxiety disorder, in all its forms, and even bipolar, all have something in common when it comes to decision-making. They block our access to those core emotions and our true spiritual nature. Meaning when the time comes for dis the decision to be made, we can struggle deeply to know what to do, and then to have the will and desire to do it. When we face life-changing decisions, our mental illness can very much feel as a significant obstacle to making decisions. The best way would be to wait until our episodes have diminished to a point that we can feel something and access the spirit in a more intelligent way, but we don't always have that ability, and I have found that, for whatever reason, those life-changing moments tend to show up when our episodes are in full swing. This can make the decision process feel impossible. Even if we were to get a definitive answer from the Lord, it is often quickly overwhelmed by doubt, confusion, and distrust in our own emotions. We can literally become paralyzed by the 
what do I do problem. How do you proceed forward when you can't trust your emotions from one moment to another? I am not entirely sure that I have all the answers to that question because many of those answers will be very personal to your illness, but I have some past experiences that might help you in your personal journey. If you have some of those on your own, I would also love to hear them. I will start with my college experience. Now, college by its very nature is stressful, and stress is not a good companion to bipolar disorder. To say I struggled would be an understatement. I started out wanting to explore chemical engineering, but eventually found that my personality was significantly different from those who attended my classes. I moved to secondary education, teaching chemistry and math, and while that was a good move for me, I realized that bipolar disorder in a high school classroom was probably not going to work very well. I ended my first four-year degree with a major in chemistry and the sciences, not really knowing what I would do. Now, I worked at several jobs trying to find what I could do, ended up working at a lab for a sulfuric acid plant. While the work was good, it was not what I wanted personally, and I returned to school to obtain an MBA and then thinking about a law degree. Now, I obtained the MBA, but for some reason, though I had been accepted into law school, the way was hedged up. I couldn't make law work for me. That was one of those lessons I have learned again and again. The Lord knew that trusting my emotions back then was not going to be easy, so he would hedge up the way when I was heading somewhere that didn't make sense. If I applied to a job that was in a location he didn't want me to be, I wouldn't get the job or something else would even occur. Through this process of opening doors and hedging the way, I found a job I very much enjoy, and it came about rather unexpectedly. I was at a point to accept a job close to my hometown and had called another second job to tell them I would not be joining them. Each job was very different. One was a chemistry job, and the other was a construction management job. I was naturally leaning towards the chemistry job, but the Lord opened the construction door and closed the chemistry one, even though I loved chemistry. That job was not the end-all be-all of jobs, but the impetus to my current career in virtual construction where I simulate construction processes and work through difficult issues and concerns before construction begins. However, when I started this first construction position, the technology was not available for what I do now. But I needed construction experience, and the Lord knew what I needed, so that when the time came, I would be able to work in a field that I have enjoyed for 25 years. The key to all of this is to understand how the Lord is able to open and close doors in our lives, to afford us a direction, without us having the ability to emotionally determine that direction beforehand. The Lord can lead us along and provide for us by opening and closing doors. I have found that if I follow where the doors open, the Lord provides me the direction that I need. This does not mean that opening and closing doors is the only method he uses. For instance, he also tends to use what I can only describe as a disturbance method. While in Utah, serving as a bishop, I had a wonderful job. I was only about a year into my service as a bishop, and at this point my bipolar had been reduced to some reoccurring depression and anxiety due to a new autoimmune illness that had arisen in my life. I did not know it then, but I had psoriatic arthritis. It was affecting my ability to work at my career 
but I was managing it as best I could in its early stages. Being bishop was taxing, as it always is, and so often I had to rest. About a year into my service, I began to feel uneasy. I began to feel this disturbance in my feelings about my career and where we were living, which did not make any sense. I will admit to ignoring it for some time, as my rational brain could find no logical reason, and it felt similar but not identical to depression in some ways. But it would not leave me. So I began looking for jobs that were available, available to ease my conscience. I found a job and felt that I should apply. Knowing my past experiences with the open and closing of the door, I really didn't worry about it too much. But the doors opened to where I had to make that decision to move from Utah to Washington State. I was really unsure as to what to do. I was serving as a bishop, and I know that the Lord had made that call. But I also knew that this door was open, and if he didn't want me to take it, he would not have opened that door. I thought that maybe it was a test, but it didn't feel right. So I prayed and waited. What occurred was something I will always remember and have used regularly. I didn't have that feeling of you should or should not take the job, but I did want that confirmation. The Lord knew that I needed confirmation in a way that would be far more definitive than my own feelings. By the way, my wife at that time had postpartum depression, and so neither of us were really about to fully trust what we felt. As I waited for my answer, three separate times while visiting and talking with ward members, the Lord spoke through them without them knowing it. As they spoke, it was as if the Lord would light up a phrase or a sentence and they would say, say almost as if he was saying it himself. Each one confirmed that I should leave to take the new job. While the decision was not easy, we moved with faith, believing that was what the Lord wanted. I can tell you that my children were not extremely happy as I had a couple of them in high school and one on a mission in Arizona. However, they later came to me after several years had passed saying that it had been one of the best decisions for them as well. What I didn't know was that my wife's mother would pass away while we were there and she would be close enough to visit regularly. Four of my children and my wife's stepsister would find their spouses during that time frame. So many wonderful things occurred from that move that I could never have known beforehand. So sometimes those disturbances in our lives are put there for a reason. Interestingly enough, when my time was done there, another emotional disturbance would occur and we would eventually end up in Georgia where I call home now. Incidentally, I have another son who has found his eternal companion in Georgia. In addition to this door opening and closing and the emotional disturbance that the Lord has used regularly in my life, he has continued to develop my ability to hear the voice of the Spirit even with my continued emotional illness. My emotional illnesses are now mild compared to my previous life, but I still deal with them regularly, regularly in the more mild form in addition to my autoimmune illnesses. One of the ways that he has developed my spiritual ear is to allow for scriptures, talks, and outside voices to be highlighted when I need answers. I think that for me it is rare to get an answer when I pray and have feelings of confirmation. Because of my emotional weaknesses, almost my entire life I tend not to trust my emotions, as I can quickly believe that my personal feelings are the Lord's confirmations. I tend to get answers as I listen throughout the day and do those things that I should. A sentence in a podcast might be my answer. 
I listen to books in the evening, and sometimes my answers come there. Every so often I hear that voice in my head, but what I have noticed is that the Lord repeats himself for me regularly. He will tell me more than once, and often in a much different setting. Many times he speaks when my mind is focused on other things. I believe that for me he does this as it is one of the ways I can know that it is him speaking. For me, this has provided much needed understanding and the ability to know the voice of the Lord despite my emotional troubles. Now, however, there are two parts to this decision-making process. The first is the confirmation, which we have discussed. The second is the follow-through. Once we know the will of the Lord, we need to act in accordance. And when your center of motivation is convulsing through another depressive, anxiety-laden, or mania-driven episode, that motivation can feel very non-existent. In addition, doubt about the confirmation comes far too easily to the mind. One can easily question what the Lord said when you don't feel any desire to move forward. I believe that I'm not really different than most people when it comes to motivation when suffering from mental illness. I struggle deeply. When there exists no emotional impetus to move forward, rational reasons for resistance come fairly easily. In addition to emotional symptoms, our illness often exhibits physical symptoms that impair our physical body. We can struggle just to get out of bed much less think about serving others. And then the guilt comes in waves to overwhelm us. It is Lucifer's method to keep us down, to push us to give in and to give up. Now, because we are emotional beings, moving forward without the emotional impetus is a monumental task that requires significant energy. Not only must you put forth the effort to actually accomplish something, but you must work against your own emotional state, and that takes a toll on the mortal body. The first thing we should always remember is that the Lord fully understands and extends great mercy to those who suffer. He knows the mountain you are attempting to lift. I know we tend to forget that when the moment comes, but he's always there encouraging, lifting, helping, and lighting the way. Even with the Lord in the yoke beside us, and even when we cannot feel him, putting one foot in front of another can feel impossible. I will say I don't have the perfect answer necessarily for this motivation problem, but my experiences might be of help to someone. When I get, Again, when I was serving as bishop, and really this could be any calling in the church, I was often tired and exhausted due to my autoimmune illness and some depression that followed the disease. There were appointments to be kept and people to be helped. I delegated what I could, and then I would simply ask for the Lord's help for those moments I needed it. I remember being one time so tired I could hardly lift my body out of bed, but I had several appointments to attend to that day. I was not motivated to move, much less had the capacity to spiritually help another person. I simply told the Lord that if he needed me to serve, I would need help. Now I didn't miraculously arise from the bed of my affliction. Quite the contrary. I dragged myself up to the church building not knowing exactly what I was going to do. Not until I sat down in the chair a few moments before the first interview did the Lord provide the strength necessary to complete the task. I had no difficulty providing spiritual counsel or discussing difficult problems. I felt quite normal and spiritual. I spent several hours in interviews and then returned home with significant energy. However, once home, within hours, I was back to my bed resting again. 
What was interesting about this small miracle was that it would happen again and again during my service. When the Lord needs you to do something, He can and does provide for it. Sometimes we just need to make the first move. My second example is more general in its nature. Sometimes the decisions we make are longer term and require a sustained effort over a period of time. When my body would lag and I was unable to really find that motivation to move forward, I would just do something small towards the goal. I would pick just some part of that decision and do something, even if it was so small that it felt insignificant. Just making a small effort, the Lord was able to multiply my efforts, and at times I would feel the energy to continue, and at other times I would not. Sometimes we simply need to show the Lord that we are willing to do something, and that is sufficient for Him. We far too often get wrapped around the idea that I must read a chapter when a few verses will do. Sometimes, many times, it is more about the obedience than the quantity of things we get done. Our willingness to go and do something, small, matters a great deal to the Lord, and blessings flow when we do. He knows the heavy lifting we are doing, and He can certainly feed thousands with a couple of fish and barley loaves. So when we are wallowing in the mire of our illness, sometimes washing our hands is sufficient. I know that sounds ridiculous, but it really isn't. I believe it was Elder Holland who stated that the Lord loves effort, and it is not about the quantity, but the quality of our effort. When we go forth and do, when every part of our being is telling us just stay where we are, we demonstrate a loyalty and a love of the Savior that will be rewarded exponentially. Finally, there will be days when we don't do anything, when the illness gets the best of us and we simply don't move forward. Accept those days and let them go. The Lord would rather not have you dwell on them. Yes, I understand that it is difficult not to feel guilty, but the Lord does not want us motivated by guilt. He wants us motivated by love for Him. Guilt simply gets in the way and the Lord knows it. Some of some, so he is full of great mercy for your emotional difficulties, and he wants you to move forward and not dwell on the past. You are of great worth to him, and he has given you your weakness for a divine purpose. He understands those bad days, and he just wants you to start each day with a clean slate and do what you are able. He loves you deeply, and he knows of your pains and suffering. He is, after all, your savior and everything that title means. May he bless you and keep you in his loving arms. Until next week, do your part, no matter how small, and the Lord will do his.